This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. morning sir well looking outside it doesn't really look like it's that good of a morning we're under a snowfall warning again but hey welcome to the north yeah it's sunny uh yeah shut up beautiful <laughs> just shut up actually we're getting we're they're forecasting snow for today too so uh, oh so you gotta shut the shut the city down eh yeah yeah at least you guys are prepared for it there we are not so yeah Ooh. Episode 63, and uh, we have uh, Wayne Sawchuck on the uh, on the podcast, and just a uh, very interesting perspective. Uh, Wayne grew up in uh, logging, um, hunter, um, and uh, he, he's had a lot of perspective changes over his, his mm-hmm. career. And, uh, you know, we get into some, yeah, I guess, I, I guess what could be considered controversial stuff. We talk about yeah. the wolf call in northern British Columbia. Uh, we talk about logging practices, um, you know, land use planning. Um, so, yeah, Wayne's got some very interesting perspectives being on the landscape and, um, you know, and, and has seen a lot of change over the last, uh, you know, number of decades that he's been out there. So it's really interesting to hear his perspective. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, it's a really, really good podcast with uh, with Wayne. Yeah, I just sat back and listened and very rarely do I do that. It's it's. It's neat to hear somebody that's essentially been there do done that and evolve, right? Uh, you, you get a different sort of perspective uh, from where from where we are as consumptive users at our stage of life to where he is, right? And I thought I thought it was a neat uh, a neat uh, neat point of view. Uh, yeah, as you said, uh, could be a bit controversial. Some of our listeners might not like it, but well, everybody's allowed their opinion, right? And that's exactly what this this is. It's somebody who who's lived it and is still living it, and they're 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 given what they see. So, well, and one thing about it is, uh, you know, uh, nobody can criticize Wayne's uh, zest for seeing. Uh, healthy habitats, seeing wildlife on the landscape, and the work that he's done to protect that through the MK. And um, so, yeah, really, really cool podcast. I really enjoyed hearing uh, Wayne's perspectives and uh, and uh, yeah, and and just hear his experiences of being on the landscape. Uh, yeah, what, for a long time. one little bit of trivia that I I thought you might have got into is where he's from. Right, he lives in Rolla, BC, and I'm I'm a new sheep guy, as you know. And that's where the guide outfitter was based when he took L.S. Chadwick on the hunt, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I thought that was a pretty cool, cool, cool piece of trivia. I didn't pick up on that at all, for sure. But I know, you know, it's interesting. He's talking about his expeditions and he talks mm-hmm. about all the spots. And it was the spots where, you know, L.S. Chadwick went on his yeah. expedition, right? That was par- That's part of it. I don't know if he actually retraces those steps or not. I'm not sure exactly how his expeditions work, but uh, certainly cool to hear just, yeah. you know, over the head of the prophet and you know i i love the story where he talks about him and his girlfriend in 84 where they're on an 85 day expedition and they basically get cliffed out in a snowstorm and they're they're stuck on the hill and you know really he didn't come out and say it directly but their life was at risk there and um the story about uh how they got off there and what was involved so very interesting story and and loved hearing that perspective mm-hmm 
Yeah, as we, as we said, it's uh, a, a lifelong perspective that has evolved over time. And I think it's, uh, it's a spicy lesson, we'll say, for some people. But I, I enjoyed it. If you sit back with an open mind and uh, just listen, I could uh, come with a new perspective. So just some uh, housekeeping around the society. We've got a couple things that's uh, out there. Our membership drive or membership promotions uh now live. Um, so if you're thinking about buying a membership, this is a good time to do it. Uh, you can upgrade um, and everyone's got a chance to win. So first prize is a, a day on the water, uh, fishing for sturgeon on the Fraser. And uh, it's for four people, a great trip. Um, so with um, Streamline Adventures, um, the uh, the whole membership drive itself is uh, underwritten by Wood Wheaton Supercenter. So thanks to uh, the good people in Prince George for bringing this to us and and uh, making our members, giving them a chance to to win some really cool prizes. They're all right. <laughs> Easy does it there, <laughs> Steve. Uh, yeah. So second prize is a um, uh, Frontiers men, um, Frontier men's gear uh, knife, a caper. Uh, cool. It's a rid- ridge line, isn't it? It's a Ridgeline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's awesome actually a brand company. new line. They don't even have it up on their mm-hmm. website yet. So um, yeah, get, get your name in um, upgrade today and we'd love to have you support us. Uh, and there, there's, there's the third prize too, isn't there? Yeah. What is it, Steve? Oh, it's a swag package from the, from us. Like that's the best part there. <laughs> and a, and a Claymore headlamp. I've got one of those uh, Wood Wheaton, uh, is is selling them and has donated and i absolutely love my uh my claymore it's pretty cool i'm a, i'm turning into a bit of a gear junkie now uh, not looking or tossing any blame in any directions mr stelter but uh, i'll do that to you yeah, yeah exactly it's cool i really like it they're rechargeable and they last like 40 hours or something so that's a hell of a long time but anyway yeah, how do people cool. how, how do people get their membership? What's when do we run in that too? It's like August thirteenth or something, right? So yeah, we're going to draw the winner at the Jurassic. So you got some time, but uh, get your name in. And also, um, we're doing a drive to fifteen hundred. So once we hit fifteen hundred mm-hmm. members, we're going to give away a Yeti sixty five cooler, um, and it'll be just a random draw. So anyone that enters after January first, once we hit fifteen hundred, we're about thirteen hundred members now. So two hundred will hopefully hit hit that this summer, and uh, we're going to give away. Uh, a Yeti 65 courtesy of our good friends over at Yeti. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to the website, wildsheepstudy.com, click on membership. It's all there. And we'd love to have you join. We need your support to further our wild sheep initiatives. Uh, wild sheep salute to conservation. It's on March 12th. Again, go over to the website to get registered. Um, there's free registration. Uh, you get your name in for some Sitka gear. If you pony up 20 bucks, you get a few more benefits through that. Um, and then if you go up right up to the $50 mark, uh, you get uh, soup to nuts. You get everything uh, available that we have for the weekend. Uh, includes a week uh, subscription to the Hunting Film Tour. So there's 12 to 13 uh, shorts that are fantastic content from a good friends at Hunting Film Tour. Um, and plus, we're going to give away a bunch of prizes as well with that. So um, we got a Stone Glacier backpack for our $50 entries and our $20 entries. It's a... Uh, Yeti cooler as well. So great prize packages, tons of great stuff happening this weekend. We've got uh, films, we've got awards, we've got a live silent or timed auction and uh, just uh, and a ton of content. Uh, we got a full day uh, project updates and uh, we're going to do, uh, what do we call it? Big horns and brews with uh, Nolan Osborne and friends. Mm-hmm. Big horns um, and brews. Get over, sign up, 
to again it's on our website wildsheepsociety.com uh, wild sheep raffles are still going most of them are uh, well we're about half sold out um, I think um, our uh, what is it our Barney's ultimate sheep camp that'll, and that'll be our, gone by the time this comes out I'm thinking yeah and desert sheep camp they're done but uh, we still got a few tickets left for our uh, antelope and outed and uh, grizzly bear will be pretty close to be sold, sold out as well so um, if you're wanting to get some tickets you better do that now with that, episode 63 with uh, Wayne Sawchuck. Enjoy the listen. If we told you tomorrow that elk, black bear, and bighorn sheep were next, would you speak up? Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildsheepsociety.com slash act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Good day, Wayne. I was going to say good morning, but I think uh, you're out in the East Coast, aren't you? Absolutely. Uh, we're here in Halifax for another uh, week or so and then heading back to uh, Raleigh in northern British Columbia. Okay, so is that uh, a second home for you out there? Are you just out visiting, or how does that work it's for you? It's a second home for us. Yeah, we have uh, a family out here, so we come out during the winter and spend a few months. Fantastic. So um, how does that compare to northern BC's winters? Oh, it's uh, it's crazy here. The weather is so up and down. I mean, we get uh, there's a huge storm, and then it'll uh, thaw. And I guess uh, the basic bottom line is the weather is way shorter here. We, we get longer stretches of weather up north, and uh, you know, it lasts for few days or a week but here it's like practically hourly yeah interesting uh my in-laws as well we're out on the east coast and they you know they looked at all the east coast and they thought, oh it looks so idyllic and then they spent their first winter out there and they're like well it was it wasn't well and they live in southern bc as well right so it was uh, sure. yeah it was uh, they loved it loved the people loved the area but it was like uh, there was that winter that, and i think it was a particularly harsh winter a couple years ago and they're like i don't know about this so. well you know we're coming from uh, northern bc so uh, compared to that this is a lot warmer and uh, so it has its advantages for sure excellent well and if family's there too it makes it a lot easier if you've got people you want to be around so it's good Absolutely. for you well thanks for coming on the show wayne uh you know we've had lots of requests to have you on and you know you've got a just an amazing career with uh in the wild wildlife arena and the conservation community and the expedition community um and you, you know you're the collaboration you've done with first nations with um you know stakeholders just so many different aspects of your career I'd love to talk about but Kind of the thing we, I'd like to jump into to start with, if you don't mind, is kind of how you got started. Did you, you know, your where did you begin and where did all this interest in, in you know, I guess the, the backcountry and wildlife begin for you? You know, I kind of grew up in it. I uh, grew up in northern British Columbia near Chetwand and my f- uh, family, uh, we lived way out on, uh, on the pine and it was a wild country at that time. Uh, you know, we had moose and grizzly bears in our backyard and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of got steeped in the in the wilderness. And then, um, uh, I was still in high school and we started going out in the mountains with the horses and, and, uh, yeah, it just kind of continued from there in the eighties. I started going on uh, long expeditions. Um, the, the, I think the first ones were a couple of weeks into the Hassler and the country. And then we, the next trip in 1983, we did a 45 day trip into, uh, the Spatsizi country. And then after that, a girlfriend and I did an 85-day trip into uh, the Prophet, Musqua, 
area. Uh, so uh, that taught me a lot that particular trip, and and basically I never looked back from there. I've been going back out into the Musquakachika uh, almost every year since uh, since those years in the eighties. So with those trips, then for you, was it um, did it start off as just your personal experience you were in the backcountry, and then it evolved into like the business aspect of it for you or, or was it uh did you start right off with a business in that realm no i was basically hunting at that time and uh doing quite a bit of guiding and and also trapping and that sort of thing so um yeah we uh i was hired by uh, guide outfitters up in the yukon to work for a season up there and down in the chilco lake area i was guiding there and then um, in the Musquakachika for a few years uh, around uh, Terminus and and uh, Mayfield, the Gutaga country there. So I did quite a bit of guiding. And so I got to compare uh, in, when I wasn't guiding, I'd be back home in the winter times and logging is what we were doing at that time. And and the country around Chetwin, we were going into all the basically unlogged drainages at that point. Drainage after drainage, we were roading and developing. And I was comparing that with what was happening up in the Musquakachika, where the land was still healthy and, and, and uh, you know, all the animals were still living on the landscape as they always had. And I began to realize that, hey, wait a minute, we're having a huge impact here. Our activities, our logging activities are, are having a huge impact on wildlife and certainly the wild places that I really love, the wilderness. And I began to realize that, wait a minute, our, our activities are just causing too much trouble and we actually have to tone down and some areas should not be logged, you know, and, and we needed to have uh, more parks and so on. So in the early 90s, I started to get involved with conservation campaigns. I was <laughs> basically logging to support my environmental habit at that time and, um, and working to, pr- to protect land bases around Chetwind and uh, Dawson Creek and the Dawson Creek timber supply area, essentially, at that time when I started out. Okay, yeah, so that's how I kind of started out uh, working for the land base. And then uh, the land and resource management planning processes kicked in in around 1992. And uh, I'd been going up into the Musquakachika, well, guiding up there. And I began to realize that, wait a minute, this area is just too important uh, to allow to be eroded and developed and basically from a wilderness perspective destroyed. And so... uh, I uh, started to work for the Musquakachika through that process, and and ultimately uh, many others as well, of course, had the same idea because the Musquakachika is a fabulous area. I mean, you know, it has just about the entire population of stone sheep uh, in the world, as we know, a, a good good chunk of them anyway, and uh, uh, lots of other values as well, Mo- mostly wilderness and wild places, which is why the animals are still there. And so that process was successful in producing the Musquakachika management area. Um, that that came out of that uh, well, basically a ten year planning process. So with with that uh, the MK, can you talk a little bit about how that kind of evolved? Obviously, First Nation involvement. It was interesting, you know, in the Land of Dreamers um, uh, movie that was done there. It's interesting how you know there was First Nations, I guess, presence, but not uh, as a, a title holder per se. I guess they 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 were watching from the outside, but didn't participate because they were sort of um they'd mentioned their their need to be recognized as a title holder and that wasn't necessarily happening can you elaborate a little bit on that process and and how that involvement worked and obviously you've done a great job on the collaboration aspect with first nations but um at that point i guess the government wasn't quite right there recognizing rights and titles and g2g type stuff so um can you shine a little bit of light on that for us 
Yeah, when the land and resource management planning process got going, essentially the government uh, said, well, look, at, we're, all, we're all sectors and uh, you represent your sector interests, but you leave your hats at the door. We're trying to develop a plan that everybody can agree to at the end of the day. And for First Nations, that was really challenging. And so, so um, the, as a group, uh, as a whole, uh, they decided not to participate in the process officially. But some groups uh, did participate unofficially. They sent representatives to represent the basically the interests, but not the official, you know, stance of the bands and so on. And uh, what that did was it got some of their interests on the table, those that participated. And as a result, uh, some of the plans do represent some First Nations to some degree. But overall, um, most of them were not represented. And uh, there needs to be another go-round. Uh, at this point, we do need to redo the LRMPs, and that process has already started in Fort St. John. The Fort St. John LRMP update is uh, un- ongoing at this point. Uh, they're working on the terms of reference now, and I think that's totally appropriate. And it, uh, sooner the better to get that get that done and make sure that those interests that are, that really have been out there on the land base for literally thousands of years uh, have to be incorporated into our plans. And, you know, um, the land and resource management planning process was kind of a, in some ways, it was a one-shot deal. We basically looked over the entire land base. We uh, decided where the parks would go, where the high-intensity development goes, uh, um, where the special management areas like the Musquecachica would go, all of that kind of stuff, reflecting, of course, what was on the land base. But um, uh, we can never do that again. Once we uh, did that once we zoned the land base. It was essentially the end of the frontier. Uh, the land base was now zoned and managed. And you know, for a wilderness guy like me, uh, that was kind of hard to take. Uh, you know, the fact that hey, when I understood that, that you know, the wilderness is it's not real wilderness anymore because it is now planned and managed. But the land base is still there. The land base is still strong. And I think that uh, for for First Nations. Um, they now have uh, a land base which is, you know, healthy, intact, and uh, can accommodate their interests, which they've, uh, you know, exercised on the land again for thousands of years. So I think it's totally positive. But now it's time uh, for First Nations to, uh, you know, take their rightful seat at the table and negotiate those uh, additions and updates to the LRMPs to make sure that their interests are accommodated. And, And that has to be done sooner rather than later, in my opinion. Great. Okay, so let's let's just back the bus up a little bit for our listeners, Wayne, and, and talk a little bit about what the Musqua uh, Kachika Wilderness Area is. First of all, why it's so important, why it's important to you, and uh, and then you know what was the outcome of that agreement um, to to the redesignation of that land uh, area. Um, so just talk a little bit about the importance, I guess, to ecology to you. Um, about Musqua Kachika and, and a little bit maybe even where it is because some of our listeners are from outside the province as well. So. Sure. Well, the Musqua Kachika is a, a big chunk of wilderness that sits basically west of Fort Nelson, west of uh, Fort St. John, runs basically between Fort St. John and uh, Watson Lake, the, kind of that big country, basically north central British Columbia. It's about six and a half percent of the province. Um, the first time which makes it twice as big as uh, Vancouver Island. The first time that I went into the Musquecachica was in 1984 on uh, an 85-day trip, which I mentioned. 
And we um, did a big trip in just a girlfriend and I, Caroline, Henry, and I. We went into uh, the, the uh, first of all, the Sikany, up through the Nevis Creek, Prophet River, over the top into the Musqua, up the Musqua, into the Gatho, and then came back. And on our way back, we were following some advice from a, a friendly outfitter to, and uh, went uh, through the head of the Prophet, up a, a place, uh, a pass that, uh, in actual fact, there was no trail there. We uh, we got his information wrong or or whatever happened. The, the point being that we ended up at about 7,500 feet with snow over our knees and no way forward. It was just cliffs. And uh, we spent the night up, up there, well, several nights, actually in the mountains, trying to, trying to find a way through. And finally, we found a, a set of caribou tracks. There was a half a dozen caribou, five bulls, five big bulls and one small one, because I saw them in the mist when I came over the top of the, the pass. And there they were on a kind of a rock spur with these huge antlers waving in the mist. But what they had done is basically found a track through the through the um, mountains and and down a big steep cut, and uh, essentially we wouldn't have found that route if we uh, if we hadn't uh, followed those tracks because everything was snowed in. It was over over two or three feet deep of snow, and you couldn't find a track, couldn't find a trail. And so essentially, those caribou saved certainly the lives of our pack string. Uh, we had six horses at that time, and uh, uh, it it saved it may have saved our lives too. And so for me, the prophet has always been a place of deliverance. And so it, when I was uh, at the LRMPs, this was always in the back of my mind that we have to protect the prophet. Well, it turns out that the prophet is not in a par uh, park. We were not, not successful in getting the prophet into a park. It's a special management area because of a bunch of uh, mining claims for rare earth minerals, which we all use. It's from our cell phones. Rare earth minerals are used in our cell phones. And as a result, the profit is not protected. But there's many other really great areas that are protected. Just north of that, of course, the Musqua, the Chiska, Tetza, all of that is in the Northern Rockies uh, uh, Park. And uh, the, the Gataga, uh, Graham River, a bunch of really, really great parks, Redfern, Keeley. And so about a third of the total area of the Musqua-Kachika is in park area. And about two thirds of it is in special management. And what that special management means is that it's specified in the plans that people who operate in there have to maintain wilderness, wildlife, and its habitat over time. Now, what does that mean if you're going to do industrial development in there? It means you have to, you know, reclaim the roads, take them out at the end of the development cycle, that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a huge challenge and certainly not a model that anyone would have protected if we had or would have uh, advocated for if we would have had our druthers, you know, if we had our choice, uh, certainly that's not what we would have chosen. We would have, as a conservationist, I would have want that all to be protected, all, all park. But others, you know, industrialists, uh, who uh, those industrial interests, they would like to see it all open for industrial development. So it is a very big compromise on all side and, and sides. And to the credit for oil and gas and forestry and the mining companies that, that agreed to that plan, I mean, it it, it did hurt their interests to some degree. And uh, the conservation as well gave up a bunch to produce the Musquecachica. So I think for that reason, it's a really strong plan. And it's one that, you know, it's been the, the last chunk of it was done in the early 2000s. And it's still, it's still carrying on. Uh, it's still live. It's still healthy. 
and the plan is still strong. And the reason for that, I firmly believe, is because it was done by consensus. And nobody wants to go back on those agreements when we know how far, how hard we fought for them and really truly believe that this is the best plan that we could have come up with at the time. Obviously, there was a huge compromise there and getting industry on board is a big part of that solution, as you pointed out. Is this a model for other parts of British Columbia? Obviously, there's parts of BC that's you know heavily steeped in industry, mining, logging, et cetera, that's having a severe impact on conservation. Is there a model in other parts of the province that we can use moving forward? Yeah, I really believe there is. I think that uh, the Musquakashika can be used certainly wherever there's wilderness and, and areas that are not too heavily compromised. I really believe it does have a lot of options, a lot of opportunities for, for success there. I think one of the main uh, features is that it has a board, the Musquakashika Advisory Board, that you know kind of helps to uh, oversee the area. Uh, it has government funding. Uh, not not to a great deal at this point. And when we started out, it was as high as three million dollars annually. Now it's about one hundred and fifty thousand, roughly, depending on on the day. It's it's kind of in that range. Keep the board running and the activities of the board. So uh, well, it's not it's not as lucrative as it was. The government is still supporting it, and to their credit, because you know I think the the board and the Musquakachika really deal with a lot of issues prior to getting into government's hair. And, and I think that's a really important thing. I think for government, it really does reduce uh, trouble. It's a trouble reducer all, all around. And that's the challenge, right? We all have these competing interests and we're all trying to figure out what we want to do. And as conservationists, we want it just left intact. And then industry wants to take everything that they can. Uh, you know, obviously, they've got a duty to their shareholders or owners. So um, it sounds like uh, this is a pretty healthy compromise. Just out of curiosity, who is on that uh, MK advisory board? Um, is it obviously industries on there? Is there government on there? Um, who who uh, makes no up government that officially? Board? No, but no, uh, because they are the decision makers, so they're not on the board. But they, we do report directly to government, and government can can then um, you know they take our advice or leave it. it. It's up to them. There's no obligation to take our advice. Um, yeah, there's conservation interests on there. There's uh, there's First Nations, there are uh, uh, hunters and uh, fishers on there. There's uh, uh, oil and gas folks, forestry. So a pretty good cross-section of, of the folks who sat at the LRMP and created the, the um, MK or at least, uh, you know, uh, recommended it to government. Um, and I would say that um, the board members are really aware that they have a duty to protect the interests not only their own interests that they represent, but also the interests of the broader public. And so if um, for some reason, you know, we don't have a river boulder on the, on the board at this point, and, and uh, if an issue comes up around river boating, people will say, well, wait a minute, the river boaters would, would probably have this to say about it. So I think we better, we better accommodate that, that perspective or that point of view. So there's a, a, real, a real effort to make sure that the decisions and the recommendations that come out of the board are balanced and uh, represent basically uh, all points of view, as many as we can possibly do. So as we know, Wayne, things, you know, you set a course for something and then things change. People change. Uh, and now the MK was, was it 95? They had their official de uh, de declaration as a, uh, under this agreement? 1998. 98. 98 was the first, first uh, chunk. So here we are 24 years later, obviously, 
you know, people move on. And uh, so how do you keep that culture going? And I guess that's kind of one of the things for you is I think that you're, you know, with your expeditions, you're coming towards your, I think you're wrapping that up as well here at some point in the near future. What, what is succession planning and what, how do we keep that legacy going? How do we keep that cooperative spirit alive? How does that MK board, for example, keep things together and keep going in the right direction where there's this shared interest? You know, I think that's a uh, that is always a really big challenge. Um, for me personally, I'm I'm very lucky that I work with a couple of uh, young folks uh, uh, who Alex and Michelle who are going to be uh, potentially taking over the operation uh, when I stop. Which, you know, I'm I'm already dial, dialing back. I'm not doing the three months expeditions um, since last year. We I've did those I've done those since uh, well again from the 90s till just last year. Um, but uh, you know, nothing lasts forever got a knee that's causing me grief and it's going to, it's keeping me off of those big expeditions. And that's how, you know, that's, that, that is, uh, as life goes, that's the way it goes. Um, but on the broader question of what, how the, uh, Kachika board keeps things together. I think at the bottom line, we all understand that the, the land base is so important out there. I mean, it has more species in, of large mammal in greater abundance than anywhere else in North America. That's according to the, according to the, um, uh, biologists, and it, it it's the biggest area of wilderness, certainly in the Rocky Mountains by a long shot, and that means it's a resource of global importance. So I think that you know people are going to be standing up to protect that area, just for those reasons alone. Let alone because we recreate in there, we hunt in there, we fish in there, and uh, you know it, it's just a place that we all know and love. Uh, those of us who met, who are lucky enough to get out there. So I think that will speak for its long-term protection. And, and um, yeah, I think the template laid out by the LRMPs of basically cooperative uh, agreements and, and uh, uh, consensus agreements, I think is going gonna, is gonna to be the, the template for the future. It's the only way it can really go. No, we can't just have any one sector running off with the ball and saying, we're going to play my game and not yours. That's just not the way it works in the MK. There's too many people involved, and we all have to make compromises in order to make it work. Yeah, well said for sure. Okay, so let's switch it up a little bit. And so throughout your career uh, and being on the land base, you've seen, you know, a lot of changes over the years. And, you know, some of those may have been uh, reduced by your involvement with the MK and and getting this land designation and um, stopping, you know, full-blown industry growth and in the MK, for example. Let's talk about wildlife itself. Um, what have you seen numbers wise um, you know what what are our populations doing how do they look in in northern bc in general and in the mk if you like as well that's a pretty mixed bag out there right now uh the certainly uh, about uh 10 12 years ago or so uh the caribou numbers just started to plummet and uh, a lot of the herds were in really big trouble and they're starting to rebound now because of you know some activities that were were um undertaken certainly the wolf kill uh that that uh, program, it's, which is ongoing at this point, um, that really helped the caribou out. I really believe that we would have seen several herds extirpated if not for uh, the wolf kill and also maternal penning. I think maternal penning has done a really great job in, in bringing up those numbers again. And a lot of the herds are starting to rebound. So from a caribou perspective, I'm you know cautiously optimistic to use that word. Um, elk and moose... Uh, they had a huge drop uh, about uh, 10 years ago or so. Uh, those numbers went down 
I mean, it, it depends who you ask. And I haven't, I haven't got final numbers from anybody on this, but I would say my own self, I think it was around 70%, maybe even 80% of elk and moose uh, were the population dropped about 10 years ago. And what was the reason for that? Well, they dropped in the, in the Gataga, which has no roads, uh, no uh, riverboat traffic, very, very little hunting. And yet the numbers went dropped like a stone. Uh, and there wasn't any, any more wolves that, than usual or bears. I mean, we're out there all every year for at least, uh, you know, six weeks. And we, we didn't see any great amounts of, uh, of upkeep, uh, uptick in wolves or, or bears. So that points to, for me, it was something climactic that happened. It was a climate issue. And I really believe what, we, what happened is we had some big uh, thaws in January. We had hot weather and we had rains. And that just glazed over the snow and the wolves just had a field day, basically, what wolves there were. And they just hammered those poor uh, um, uh, uh, moose and elk. So, you know, that's a a serious problem. Now uh, the wolf kills are helping to bring those numbers back. The question that I would have is, when do we know that we've done enough? When are we going to stop the wolf kill? When do we know that we've had enough, have enough done? And, you know, I think uh, government has an obligation to actually uh, set some numbers, some targets. Okay, when moose populations reach this level, that's when we're going to shut down the wolf kill. We're going to figure we've done enough or caribou numbers or sheep or whatever it happens to be. Um, But I think uh, government has not done that. And I think there's a, a, well, two failures in management. One there when they can't say when this program should be completed or when it when we've done enough that's one thing and the next thing is is uh, what are those numbers out there what what was the cause of that big decline and if you ask government they won't be able to answer that at this point i have never been able to get an answer on that one and i think if you're managing wildlife and you lose 80% of your numbers i think you have to seriously look at why and we i don't think we as as well, government has not done that in any kind of detail. And I think that's a serious failure of management, frankly. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Um, so, and what are you seeing, just out of curiosity, you, you mentioned uh, most ungulates there. How about sheep populations? What have you noticed in your, you know, in the MK there with regards to uh, wild sheep? Stop. You know, sheep populations, the populations seem to be, you know, relatively stable. They're, they're going along. I mean, you never, you never see a whole bunch of them and, a lot of places that used to have sheep, uh, lots of sheep, will not have very as many anymore. I, so overall, the numbers uh, have to be down from what they were in the 70s and 80s, for sure. I think there's some, there's some issues around sheep, certainly. And, and um, one of them uh, is the genetics. I think this is a, a major issue at, that I, I have a lot of trouble with. When I was guiding um, around Terminus, um, some of the native guides there, the old timers, were telling me, yeah, there's a... There's an old, old ram in there that uh, his his horns, instead of uh, making a nice curl, they kind of bunch up on top. You know, there there's a genetic issue with his horns, and they kind of bunch up instead of making a nice horns. He said, so so we take we just take those out of the out of the population if if we need to, if we see them. And his kids, we take those out too. Well, what does that mean when when you know you have one sheep that's producing a a, a genetic line into the into the population that's not a positive thing? And they start taking them out because they don't want those genetics. Fair enough. But at the same time, here we are taking all the big sheep out. We're hunting all the big guys. And, and it's, it's got to the point 
An outfitter was telling me uh, just a little while ago, actually, that there's a valley, uh, or sorry, uh, a mountain that he knows, this is in the Toshodi area, where the sheep, uh, the horns were beautifully big and wide and flared out. They flared out beautifully out to the side, made beautiful heads. Well, they were very attractive heads. And as a result, um, they had a lot of hunting pressure. And he said, you know, on that mountain now, we can't find any of those big, wide, flared sheep. They're all shot out. They're gone. And so I think those kinds of issues, and also, you know, we've been taken out about, uh, it varies, but between one and 200, it's a little less now, a little less than 100 sheep, uh, sheep per year out of Area 7B, which is a, uh, a big sheep area. And I have to wonder, if you take 100 rams out uh, year after year, what are the results of that? I really believe that it affects not only genetics, but also culture when you take basically a lot of the big guys out of there. And um, so I think that, you know, all hunters have to think about this genetics and also numbers. And how do we keep that, um, you know, animals have culture and particular and moose or sorry, elk are part of that. Sheep are part of that. Sheep have a culture. They will the old rams will tell the young rams when to go from this mountain down into the valley or that mountain, where to find the ewes and lambs and all the rest of it. And when you take those guys out of the population, that leaves us with um, some uh, some issues and basically sheep that don't really know how to operate on the landscape in the same way they used to. So I think a solution has to be found. We have to leave more old sheep on the land. That's one thing. And how do we do that? And that's to everybody's benefit, by the way. That that uh, hunters will benefit from that too, because when you have a, a chunk where, you know, the, the rams are getting old and big, well, they'll disperse eventually. And I think, uh, or their kids will. And so I think those kinds of things have to be considered. And, and uh, if we're going to have ho- really healthy populations out there on the land, and that should be the goal, not necessarily, you know, that everybody can get a sheep every year, but that we have healthy populations that, and, and healthy cultures and healthy genetics that stay for year after year after year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's definitely something we're struggling with in the province right now, that dialogue, right? And um, yeah, for sure. So what does the resource need? And that's a very interesting perspective. Um, yeah, and it's not only sheep, I would say, if I, if I may, Kyle, it's not only sheep, but you know, all, all, uh, all of these uh, animals certainly have those issues, a little less with, you know, uh, moose lose their antlers every year. So it's not the same thing. They, a, they get a new shot at it every year, if I can use those words. But uh, but with sheep, it, it's additive because, you know, oh, well, we all know they don't lose their, their horns. They just keep getting bigger and bigger every year. And so those big guys are the ones that, that get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's just segue for a bit and talk a little bit about industry. So you grew up logging. You, you mentioned you'd be outfitting in the fall and then you'd, you'd um, go and logging to support your your habit of being in the backcountry. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, industry? You've talked, you touched a little bit on it, how it's impacted you as a conservationist and how you needed to do more. You've seen there was a need to do more to protect the areas we love. But, um, you know, even let's let's segue today to where we are. You know, I hear often that uh, a lot of habitat-related issues is at the, at the mercy of the logging industry. So, you know, is there something we could be doing differently there and how should we uh, approach this? Well, it certainly is a, a big question. Um, when I grew up, uh, I grew up in Chetwin, and the at that time the the Pine Pass, 
was a, basically a dirt road. And there were no roads off the, uh, off the uh, Hart Highway. Uh, there was a little uh, kind of a road to, to Moberly and uh, one up to Seconka, about, uh, just up to Twidwell Bend. So what's that, 10 miles or something. That was it. Well, now we're at a situation where almost every valley in that whole timber supply area is roaded, developed, and, and uh, logged, and mined, and, and oil and gas, and everything else. So if you, care, if you compare that landscape that's down around Chetwin with, with what's happening inside the Musquecachica, where it's pristine, it's a totally different landscape. And, and the wildlife is different. I mean, around Chetwin, it's a, it's a big challenge for anything that depends on mature habitat to survive. I mean, uh, grizzly bears, wolverines, and those kinds of animals that take, take big wilderness, have they're, they're getting pushed, pushed into the backcountry, and, and uh, if there's any left, in fact. So it's a huge issue. Um, the LRMP was successful to a, a point. It got some good uh, park areas around around Dawson Creek, but the numbers were pretty low. And and frankly, I think that landscape is um, is challenged at this point. There's just way too much development. So what do you do? We have to dial it back if we're going to maintain those those uh, populations and that habitat over time, and uh, that's going to cause some hurt. But, you know, uh, what are our choices? We have to move to a situation, a management situation, where sustainability is the number one goal. It's not just, as it used to be on the frontier, to exploit as much as we could. That's where we, ha- that's where we were. We have to move to a different system where sustainability is the bottom line. And if it's not sustainable, we just don't do it. And I think that's where we have to go. And, and I, do, I do believe society is waking up to that fact. So how do we transition when we're talking about, you know, your family grew up in the logging industry, it was putting food on your table. How do we make that transition where we go away from profits and people's livelihoods to focusing on sustainability? Um, Obviously, you did it in the MK and, you know, arguably it's a much smaller area. Still, it's six and a half percent of the province. It's large enough. But how do we make that transition and how do we how do we get the buy in, I guess? Um, Do we just have to make the hard decisions? I, I don't know. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's just the same thing that's happening with climate change. We all know that, you know, we have to lower our carbon uh, footprint on the on the globe. And and how are we going to do that? That's going to that's going to hurt. It's going to cause some pain. But at the same time, there's a lot of technologies that are coming up that are very, very positive and and uh, that will actually make a huge difference. And I think the same thing is true in terms of our, our all of our resource use, you know, forestry and everything else we can do more with less and and we don't have to go into those pristine areas anymore. And if we do, let's try and do it in a way that maintains the values that are out there on the land. And I, I know I'm being a bit Pollyanna-ish. If you come from the middle part of the middle part of the uh, province, for instance, and you, you know that, you know, that the, well, from a conservationist perspective, we would call it devastation. It's just, it's development, but it, it's de- devastation from a conservationist perspective. I mean, the land base has been hammered. Anybody who goes out there will know that. And uh, I think that we just have to move to a system in the future where, where we try and dial that back. And, and all, all of our efforts have to be focused on that because it's a huge issue. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I think. We just have to move to a sustainable, a sustainable relationship with the natural world and as fast as possible. Yeah, well said for sure, Wayne. Okay, we've talked a little bit about industry. Now let's move on to your... Uh, 
your background and, and some of the your memorable trips. And I know a lot of people wanted to hear about some of the cool stuff you've done. You touched on the one uh, in your trip in 84 where you were, um, you know, you guys were, were snowed out. You're on the bluff and followed the caribou down to safety. Um, let's talk about some of your more memorable trips and, and you can throw it out there. We can talk about your most memorable one, your scariest one. It might be the same one. I don't know, but let, let's jump into some of those. Certainly the Prophet River uh, one was in 1984 was a, a major trip, but we've done a lot of others too that are, are uh, interesting. I mean, uh, we came from Dees Lake once. We trucked our horses around all the way north through Fort Nelson, Watson Lake, down to Dees Lake, and, uh, and then came straight uh, east up the Jade Road, first of all, then to uh, Hata and Tucho Lakes, Denatia Lake, then uh, down the Frog, uh, to um, uh, Forsberg, uh, Driftpile, Mayfield, Gataga, and then Muncho Lake. So to cut across the top of the province like that was a, a huge challenge. Over on the uh, Hata Lake side, uh, there's a lot of a lot of granite in that country, and granite is different than shale. I mean, us uh, us folks who know the sheep uh, situation, you're usually in sh- in shale, and that's you know nice. It, 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 the mountains are rounded. There's uh, hardly, you know, the, they don't form huge gaps and so on. That's different with granite. Granite forms boulders, and those boulders form form holes in the rocks and and uh, extremely tough traveling for horses. We uh, we injured a horse on that uh, trip that that uh, he never did recover from that. Unfortunately, he got his foot hole his foot stuck down in a in a hole in the uh, in between two two granite boulders. Uh, very challenging around Hotta Lake. There was not a thing, not even a trail. In that area, so we had to make a huge loop back uh, back to the south to get to Tucho Lake. Uh, yeah, at some point, at one point on uh, on, on uh, one of those trips, you know, you're slogging along through the mud and and the moss, and it's raining, and and uh, you're wet up to your waist, and you think, I would just like to be out of here. I don't really care where I go, but just anywhere out. Well, of course you can't. You can't go out when you're there. You are there, and so. Uh, that's not an option. What I usually say is this too must pass. And we know in time it will. And, you know, we will be back uh, to good going at some point and, and out of those terrible issues that we might have been having at that particular point. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. Uh, a lot of people ask me, uh, Wayne, have, how much trouble you have from bears out there? Have you ever been hurt by a bear or attacked or whatever? You know, we see lots of lots of grizzlies, of course. We're, we've been out there you know, decades and many, many bears. We've never had a problem with a bear. Never had a bear come into camp, rip up our panniers, bother. Well, a couple of times the horses have come in with swipe marks on their, once on a, on a guy, on one of the horse's butts, you can see the five claw marks. And once on a, on a hawk, the bear had kind of swiped at the horse's hawk, but those horses weren't seriously injured. And, uh, and uh, we've never we've never had an injury from a bear. What and what do I attribute that to? Well, no meat in camp, and keeping a really clean uh, clean camp. We make sure that we as soon as anything we finish with anything, uh, wrapping papers, uh, you know, uh, tin cans, whatever. We burn burn all that stuff right away. We burn it all, and then we uh, and then we pack it all out. We flatten the cans and pack everything out. And I think uh, camp management is really really important. Uh, you know, um, we see too often people out there who do who do things that just don't make any sense. Tie their horses to trees and let them let them paw for you know nights on end. Well, that kills the tree, and and that's not a good thing. 
Um, I don't like uh, people building rock rings around their, their fireplaces. Why not? Well, first of all, it doesn't do any good. Doesn't doesn't make any difference to the fire whatsoever in terms of it spreading or whatever. And it, it'll be there for geologic time. Those rocks aren't going away. They're going to stay there forever. And so it's a question of, of uh, you know, not building structures like that, not building, you know, tent frames that you leave up. If you do, if you do build a tent frame, that's fine. But just take that, take it down afterwards and store those poles up in a tree, uh, you know, undercover. And that way, the next person that come along, he might not even notice those poles. But if they're camped there, they will say, hey, that's a handy thing and put them back at the end of the day. And, and uh, you have very little impact on the land. And I think that's really key. Um, low impact is, is the way to go. Uh, we had a, um, uh, a German couple who came through. They were actually traveling all the way from Argentina to Yukon. Took them a couple of decades to do this horse trip. And on the way through, uh, they asked my advice on where to go on these trails. And so I, I, I uh, suggested, uh, gave them some routes and so on. At the end of the summer, they said, um, uh, Wayne, we, we really liked your route. That was a great trail, but we couldn't find your camps. We never saw your camps out there. <laughs> well, that's because of the way we do it. We don't build things and we don't put stuff up and, uh, and all our garbage is gone. So all there will be is just a little low uh, fire spot in, in, the, in the grass. And that's it. Uh, hopefully, if we're successful. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it was interesting. I know on that in the Land of Dreamers uh, film, there uh, one of your guides was saying that a lot of your camps you you maybe they're used once a year when you guys come through, or maybe not for multiple years as well if you don't go to in that area for a long time. So, yeah, your your footprint is not that big in that area. So. No, it, it spread out quite a bit because that route that we we were traveling up until a year before last was about three hundred miles long. So. If you do that over a summer, uh, you're not going to spend very much time in any one spot. Hmm, very cool. Um, so what's the succession now for your expedition business? I think uh, our president, Corey Green, was saying that you – is this your last year coming up here? Um, or well, then- could, no, it's not my last year. I'm going to continue to be involved, but uh, I'm, I'm dialing back the physical uh, aspect of it. So I'm not doing those big three-month expeditions. So my uh, – my guides, uh, Michelle and Alex, are going to be uh, going to be handling that uh, uh, at this point. They did it last year and did a fantastic job, and uh, they're going to be doing it again this year. So we built a uh, a pavilion. Uh, basically, it's a, a large roof structure at uh, Mayfield, which will handle larger groups. And we intend to um, make it available to organizations and so on for for uh, basically a true wilderness experience out there in, on the Gataga. It's a uh, Pretty wild country. It's kind of in the middle of the biggest chunk of wilderness, uh, certainly in northern BC. And and uh, I think we we think that this is a, is going to work. And I'm going to be involved with that for a while yet. We'll see how long I last. <laughs> so, are you going to be doing an expedition um, this this fall? Will you be or this summer? Will you be doing some guiding yourself? Or um, yeah, okay, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be involved with. Uh, uh, we're going to do a trip into the Gatho a couple of weeks or a little less, I guess, and then. Uh, also into Mayfield and around that country. So I'll be there about out on the ground about half the time or so uh, in the summer. And, uh, and uh, Michelle and Alex will be handling the rest of that, uh, the expeditions. Very cool. So when I, you know, watched your, your, the film in the land of dreamers and stuff that there was lots of words in there, like uh, legacy, holistic, inclusive. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about your legacy, Wayne. When you look back on your career and what you've done and, you know, your professional career, your conservation career, your uh, outfitting career, uh, logging career, what, what's what's your legacy? What have you left for for this uh, the next generation and those to come? That's hard for me to sum up. I, I, I kind of like to leave that to others, but I'll tell you, the, the Musquecachica is certainly uh, one of the things that I'll feel uh, the proudest about. Uh, because it took so long, it's a decade of work uh, just to get it developed, just to get it created. And uh, I think there's a bigger picture here. Um, you know that the First Nations speak of uh, De Chin, which is basically a an area that um, uh, is left for the future, which is is meant to be uh, kept for the people uh, when times get bad, uh, that they can. They can experience the the wilderness and and basically a place of uh, of solace and comfort and and uh, keeping them alive. And I think that that concept is a good one for the Musquecachica. And and uh, I think for myself, if I if I can if I've done nothing more than than um, let people know that you know the Musquecachica is so important and it and it is a day chin. It is a place of of uh, solace not only for first nations but for everyone who goes there um and uh, that we we're so lucky to have it i think i think if that's if that's what i've accomplished uh, during my life then i think that's that's plenty for me i think that's a a fine thing that i that i'll be happy to uh, you know uh, leave behind yeah huge accomplishment absolutely for sure wayne um let's talk a little bit about your your books um the, the films you've been involved in, you know, you were on CBC back in the eighties talking about wildlife and conservation. Um, let's talk about some of your communications and your outreach uh, work and, and, you know, um, and for any of our listeners, if they want to learn a little bit more about your, you know, your past and your history and, and your, your ethics, um, you know, where, where can they go and, and talk about some of the, the reading you have available and, and some of the work you've done there? Sure. Well, it's been, it's been my pleasure to basically cart a, uh, camera around with me whenever I go out into the mountains, which I've been, you know, doing for so many decades now. I've got a lot of uh, photographs of a lot of wild and beautiful places. And uh, many of those have been used in a couple of the books. Um, uh, Musquecachica, The Wild Heart of Canada's Northern Rockies, is a is a large format photo book that I've produced. And then most recently, Crossing the Divide, Discovering a Wilderness Ethic in Canada's Northern Rockies. And this one is a uh, the newest one is a deals with a bunch of the issues that are out there on the ground, you know, both both from my own perspective and, and on a broader level, how we treat the wild places that we've uh, we've been essentially uh, entrusted with, and um, coming out of those uh, or I guess a parallel track is some of the films that I've I've helped to work on and and uh, meeting fantastic people like uh, Ryan Dickey who who also starred or <laughs> I guess. Uh, uh, was involved with the with the uh, in the land of dreamers which has just come out and that is a uh, an amazing piece and it's it's my pleasure to be involved with with all those folks the casca um, and all the people who are involved in that movie because i think they really feel for the land in 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 much the same way we might be coming from different perspectives but we all appreciate the land in the same way and i think i think the hunters um, hunters as well you know sheep hunters man those guys get up high and when you're on top of a mountain and you're looking around and you're seeing, okay, there's a there there may be some sheep on those mountains, but wow, look at that country! I think that gets into your uh, 
gets into your soul. And I don't think that's something you can forget. And, and if my if my books kind of bring a little bit of that home for people, I think uh, then they'll have done their jobs. And, and certainly I think In the Land of Dreamers is, is amazing what the filmmakers uh, Risky Creek did there. Uh, that thing is, I think it's it, it's an amazing piece from my perspective. And and I, and I know people will get a, a different experience of the Muskwika Chica than, than they've ever had by watching that. Yeah, absolutely fascinating film. So can you talk a little bit about that, having, you know, just released it now? And I guess you're doing, are you doing um, a release somewhere else? You're going to, you're doing a, a Q&A session or something uh, on another platform coming up here in the next few days. Is that not correct? Yes, that's right. There's one on uh, Y to Y, Yellowstone to Yukon. We're doing a uh, are doing a, a screening of the movie in the Land of Dreamers, and uh, yeah, that's on the eighth okay. of uh, February. Uh, and so Ryan Dickey and I, and I think Jillian Stavely as well uh, from the Casca will be on that uh, on that call and giving our perspectives on on in the Land of Dreamers. Yeah, and Crossing the Divide uh, uh, was. Um, Basically, it's a set of stories that I've uh, have kind of, you know they're they're the ones that have kind of popped up over time. That hey, this uh, this thing has a lesson for me. They they bothered me and and er, you know uh, got me to write for some reason, and uh, I, so that's why I'm quite proud of it for that reason. It it, it uh, tells the stories uh, of growing up on the pine and and my mom and dad who were quite different. My mom was. Uh, kind and gentle and never killed a thing in her life. And my dad was a total hunter. Um, so those two perspectives were ki- are kind of, you know, pulling me back and forth my entire life. And uh, yeah, I, I, that, that story is fleshed out in Crossing the Divide. So for yourself, you don't identify either way. You're not a, you're not a hardcore killer. You're not a, you know, a, a, a complete advocate for not hunting. You're, you're kind of somewhere in the middle and you see both perspectives and kind of, um, see it both ways hey yeah exactly and and i i think um you know we all have eye teeth right and the eye teeth mean that we're we're at least omnivores if not carnivores and that that means a, a partial meat diet well you're not going to find meat just laying around generally speaking you have to go out and kill it so i don't think from a an ethical perspective it's um it's 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 out of uh out of line, I think, you know, we humans have done that for our entire lives, but I think how, or our entire history, I should say, but how do you do it and when? And I think before we embark on, you know, uh, uh, killing an animal, I think there's a couple of questions that we have to ask ourselves. And the first one is, do I have a reason? What's my reason to kill this animal? And okay, you got a good reason. Then the next question is, can I do it with an ethic of respect? Can I respect the animal at the same time as I'm going to kill it? Well, that's a, that's a little bit of a harder hump. But I think all of us who take that step have to ask ourselves those two questions. And I think if we did, I think we would, we would find a different way of relating to the world, to the earth, and to the animals themselves. And, I, and I, that's, what, that's what I've done. So I haven't stopped, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 predating on wildlife. I, I still have the trap line and I'm still uh, out there trapping in the wintertime, but I, I don't hunt for fun anymore because for me personally, that's, it's not where my head's at. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't meet my ethic, but uh, you know, it, I, everyone has to answer that question for themselves. I think that's the important thing. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, 
so in the land of dreamers, uh, if people want to watch it, how do they how do they can they see it? And and just give us an overview, I guess a, a fifty thousand foot overview of what that film encompasses and and why it's so important. I guess what is relating. Well, th- this film kind of <laughs> crossed the divide. I guess you could say it. It, it uh, certainly encompasses some of my some of my perspective and the conservationist perspective. It also really focuses on First Nations and their and their role in the Musquakatika. I mean, we have to remember, you know, we're coming over a divide between the Prophet and the Musqua. Uh, way up high on the mountains, there's a little, hardly any place to camp up there. And here's a little spot where a moose has dug out a moose hole in the moss. And I'm unpacking the pack horses. There's just a little clearing there, just big enough to camp in. I look down in the hole and there are flakes. Someone, some hunter has made a stone tool there in the far distant past, we don't know how long ago, it could have been 500 years or 1,000 years, uh, whatever. But the, the point is that, that they, were, they were actually there uh, doing that for many, many decades, if not hundreds or thousands of years. And I think the film uh, brings that out really strongly that, you know, there's a long history here that we as settlers, us, us white folks as settlers will not, will not have a, 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 an idea about except what we've read or heard. Um, and I think that representing those those two sides is so important for the Musquakachika because in the long run, it's not only looking back, that but we have to look ahead, you know, for seven generations and make sure this place survives into the future for everybody, not just First Nations, but everybody who wants to experience true wilderness. So, and I think uh, in the land of dreamers kind of sets a stage for that. I believe. Well said, absolutely. Yeah, it's taking that long shot, and we all. You know, that's the interesting thing with wildlife management. We see all these problems in BC and we're like, well, let's just go out and fix them. And um, like you said, it's seven generations. You know, I think that that First Nations perspective about looking and we don't think in terms of weeks or days or, or months or, you know, we're thinking decades and centuries and the legacy we're leaving. I think that they've certainly done a, a pretty good job of looking down the road and maybe something that we could do a better job of uh, in modern times. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, we're all, we're all, we all have one goal and that's maintain uh, what's out there on the land base, both, you know, the white community and first nations as well, all of us and many others. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Okay. So if somebody wants to go and get your, your books, I can actually, I'll put the links on our, our podcast for that. Uh, In the land of dreamers, just uh, I guess a, a quick Google search with you, your name, that, uh, in the land of dreamers and CBC, it's a CBC production, correct? It is. Yeah, you can uh, watch it on CBC Gem. Just go CBC okay. Gem and documentaries, and it'll pop up. Okay, sounds great. We'll make sure we share that as well. And uh, any chance we could have you back for a webinar, and you could do share some of your your pictures and some of your stories, and do a little storytelling for us one of these days. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, another thing I I wouldn't mind doing is uh, is talking over some of the issues with folks. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, if people wanted to do a phone, a call in or whatever, that would be great too. There's a lot of issues out there and I may not be answering all those questions because, you know, people haven't asked them, but I'd be happy to do that if I could. Yeah. You know, we really appreciate it, Wayne. And that's the thing is, um, you know, I think having that local knowledge of somebody that's been on the land base, um, and that's where first nations is so important in, in these discussions, but you know, the, the local, uh, guides and outfitters that have been out there for years on the landscape and experiencing, um, you know, climate change and experiencing population change. 
Um, and again, our government doesn't have all the answers. They admittedly don't know why some of these right. habitats are, are being influenced the way they are or, or these populations are. Um, but, you know, yourself that's been there year and year after year after year after year and seeing these on the landscape, you know, you have a really good appreciation um, in a different way than a, a biologist sitting in Victoria might have, right? So I think that's a really yeah, important absolutely. part of the discussion. And- yeah, for sure. And one of those issues that's, uh, you know, coming up right now, of course, is the burning issue and how much burning should be done in the Musquecachica. Uh, that's a question that I think is is going to, you know, uh, still needs a bunch of answering. We, there's not very many burn permits being being issued right now. And from my perspective, you know, if we just leave uh, the burning to uh, willy-nilly uh, lightning strikes or whatever, it's probably not going to meet our goals as far as habitat goes and I, I really do believe we do need to have a burning program that that is rational. It makes sense that it accommodates the uh, species and and basically puts a little more uh, early cereal on the on the landscape. That's my own belief uh, because I've seen what it what it happens out there without it. We start to lose species. We start to numbers start to go down. It's not as healthy from a whole bunch of perspectives. So that's just a that's just one one issue that that is uh, kind of topical right now. Yeah, it certainly is for us at the Wild Sheep Society BC. It's something that we, you know, we've been, we spent an inordinate amount of time, money and effort trying to make these work. And, you know, yeah. it's pretty frustrating when, uh, you know, we, we, we're doing everything we can and, and we're still getting, uh, we're not getting the regulatory approvals to get things done. So pretty frustrating at times, but uh, especially when we know it's going to help, um, it's going to help wildlife, it's going to help habitat, it, you know, it's win-win, right? So Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. From my perspective, at least. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, mine too. So, well, Wayne, we appreciate your time um, right. and uh, really enjoyed this chat today. And, and yeah, let's do this again. I'd love to have you on a webinar and, and, and talk about some of your, your trips and share some of your experiences and your photos. And then, you know, have an opportunity for our listeners to weigh in with some questions and for you and, and talk about some of these more divisive issues. It's great to get it, you know, bring these these things up and think about it in a different perspective. And, and certainly from your perspective of being on the land base for decades and seeing things change and, and what you'd like to see a bit differently. It's, it's cert- certainly important to hear that. Well, thank you, Kelly, uh, Kyle. I'd ser- be ha- certainly be happy to do that. Awesome. Well, have a great day. And uh, All right. thanks again, Wayne. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Steve.